Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Here we are at midweek. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day, and we hope you are safe and well. Coming up on our program today, we're going to talk with the president and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. That industry feels left out of the CFAP, Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, and uh, they are looking and seeking to be included into the program. We'll talk about that. Kurt Blades will join us from the Association of Equipment Manufacturers with an update on the latest ag equipment sales numbers. And we'll be talking with the uh, manager of of global trade for the U.S. Grains Council as we're going to take a look at uh, our corn exports and quality of our corn exports. We'll get an update on that as they've done a a complete audit of that. We'll take a look at that information a little bit later on. But we're going to start things off today with the FSA Administrator Richard Fordyce with an update on CFAP. Richard, how are you? Thanks for being with us. Well, it's always great to be with you, Mike, and and doing well. I hope you're doing well as as well. We are. Uh, So as we take a look at the numbers, uh, you're what, two, three weeks into the uh, CFAP program now, and we're starting to see some of the numbers, how it's kind of breaking down, and it looks like, what, you, you start off, you got $16 billion to get out, and you're, what, just under $3 billion that you've sent out now? As of, yes, as of uh, Monday, Mike, uh, $2.8 billion has, has, has gone out in payment. Um, you know, we have uh, 220,000, over 220,000 producers who have applied for CFAP across the different categories, um, you know, and, and so, you know, we see continual um, progress with, with either payments or even um, the number of producers that have applied. Uh, you know, Iowa, Wisconsin, Nebraska, Kansas, Minnesota, those would be our top five states um, this week um, in payments. And, you know, we continue, we continue to see progress um, each week as we, as, we, as we put the numbers out. What about for the livestock sector? So livestock sector um, is leading the way um, at this point, followed by non-specialty crops, um, followed by dairy, and then followed by, by specialty crops. So, you know, the livestock, um, the livestock category has been, really has been the leader, I think, since the beginning. Um, you know, uh, we, we know that, um, you know, on the livestock, in the, in, in the livestock category, there are two different rates. One is for sales. Uh, of livestock between January 15th and April 15th, and the other, the other payment component to the livestock category is that inventory number uh, from April 16th to May 14th. And so, two opportunities for livestock producers, whether they had sales, um, and then also, you know, their 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 current in, or their inventory in that period of time, April 16th to May 14th. Do you think you're on schedule with this or do you think or do you feel you're you're a little behind trying to catch up or are you about where you thought you would be at this point well i think you know i I mean we we continue to see progress um certainly um you know there are there would be a lot of applications that are in process now that process is a very short timeline but you know we will have um, we'll have we'll have applications in the system that aren't reflective of that payment number that was released on monday 
um, you know, that will that will allow that number to go up, certainly go up um, when we release the, the numbers next week. Um, you know, and then we also have uh, ongoing to to the CFAT program and the eligible commodities. We also have the NOFA process where, you know, we've had a, we've had a lot of submissions um, through that NOFA process of commodities that are providing data um, for, for hopeful uh, inclusion into the program. And, you know, that comment period or that opportunity to submit um, data around inclusion, you know, ends on the 22nd of June. So that's just right around the corner. Um, you know, our teams here um, are digging into that data, some of it that's already come in, and then uh, obviously some that we're expecting. We've had, you know, conversations with different commodities, different folks about what, what kind of data would they would we need to see. We've had, you know, again, good conversations, and we, we you know, we anticipate getting some good data. Um, you know, those decisions, you know, will come after that June 22nd um, deadline for, for comments and submissions. Um, so, you know, we anticipate additional um, additional commodities coming in. Can't say how many, can't say really what the timeline is. We're going to do it just absolutely as quickly as we can. Um, uh, and so, so, you know, I think that once, you know, once that process is over we and we do potentially add some, um, some commodities, you know, we, we may even see a shift, right? So we may see a shift in, in activity to other states. Um, you know, if you, if you think about the five states, you know, currently that are kind of in the lead, you know, those are primarily livestock and livestock, dairy, um, and non-specialty crops. Um, so we'll wait and see what, what the NOFA, that NOFA process brings us, uh, and, and, you know, see where we go from there. So how close to 16 billion can you get? And still have money available in case you do accept some of these other commodities. Well, I don't. I don't know. I mean, certainly we monitor it. We monitor it every day, um, and you know we have. Um, you know we have kind of uh, prorated the initial payment at eighty percent of what the of what the producer is eligible. So we do have a twenty percent kind of you know cushion, if you will. Uh, that you know that will that we that obviously will help us get um, you know get everybody in the program, um, and so obviously that that those dollars the the payments the activity is monitored daily multiple times a day you know to see where we are. Yeah, I think you know I mean from our perspective we're still comfortable that once you know um, you know we potentially add commodities that we're still we still got room under the program. Um, to get everybody in. We're talking with FSA Administrator Richard Fordyce. Richard, real quick, uh, do you know, we've talked about how much you've sent out. Do you know how many applications have come in that you still haven't processed at this point? You know, Mike, I don't. Um, you know, we're we're staying, um, you know, we're staying pretty current. Um, you know, we've asked folks to, you know, to prioritize CFAP application when we're when we're visiting with producers. You know, it's not a great big lag time. Um, um, just just the size of the program, though. Um, you know, we could have several thousand applications in the system. They clear very quickly, but. Um, you know, it's because it's a big program and it's certainly it's national. Um, uh, I can't say for sure, but, you know, we we're keeping that timeline pretty tight. 
All right, Richard, thanks for your time and the update, and we'll stay in touch with you as this uh, program continues, and uh, we'll keep track of where we're at and appreciate your updates. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Take care. FSA Administrator Richard Fordyce with the latest on the uh, CFAP program, the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, and where they're at there. Just under $3 billion have been, has been sent out so far of the $16 billion. Later, we'll hear from the uh, president and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. They're one of those commodities still trying to get into CFAP, and we'll talk about that. Up next, though, we'll talk with the U.S. Grains Council about corn exports. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. information america's farmers and ranchers need to know adams on agriculture now back to mike adams as we keep an eye on trade and our exports let's talk now with reese kennedy manager of global trade for the u.s grains council reese thank you for joining us uh can you give us an update uh, what you are hearing from our customers when it comes to corn exports and are doing business around the world during COVID-19. Obviously, challenges there. What are you hearing from customers? Hey, Mike, first, thanks for having me. Um, It's it's an honor to be here. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting time, as we all know, um, particularly for ag markets. I think ag markets have been, and all markets truly have been tough to read um, these past couple of months. As, uh, you know, we kind of are are operating on on a a bit of panic and a bit of... uh, you know, or lack of knowledge on really what's going on around us. It's, it's just been a very interesting time. But when it comes to, you know, ag exports, uh, you know, we're going to have a, a, a quite a bit of corn here in the United States this next year, it's looking like. And, and um, that's probably going to lend itself to, to higher exports. And I think uh, the U.S., you know, as a system, has really positioned itself to, to uh, be the reliable supplier during all of this. You know, we're hearing about – uh, you know, we had issues in, in, in Argentina and Brazil with some people talking about perhaps uh, striking or calling for, for uh, you know, a, a cease to exports out of those countries during COVID-19 out of concern for their own health. Whereas here in the U.S., you know, we have a lot of plans in place. And there are a lot of different elevators and export points to, for, for grain to be able to flow around the world. So um, right now, I think the story uh, when it comes to exports is we've got, you know, full capacity in uh, in brazil due to a, a huge soybean program um so and then also you've got capacity at the gulf i think is about to be hit uh with soybeans as well uh and, and then <clears throat> you've got out of uh, argentina right now you have harvest pressure there uh some cheaper prices so argentina right now um is really out, out of the atlantic at least is really controlling a lot of those markets and that's seasonal we do see that year over year uh, but the U.S. is in there. You know, we're we're playing ball uh, in a time where we normally don't really play ball. I think um, you know our exports. If you look at at FOB prices and export charts, our exports this time of year really aren't uh, necessarily the strongest. We have some of the more expensive corn in the world traditionally, but COVID nineteen has not only uh, you know changed the narrative for U.S. corn prices due to uh, you know lack of ethanol demand, not only from COVID but also small refiners exemptions. Um, you know, have really inflated the balance sheet a bit and made U.S. corn a bit cheaper uh, during this time or more competitive during this time than we than we normally see uh, during this time of year in, in the seasonality of buying. So it's it's been interesting and cert- and another thing you know on top of that, Mike is is the reliability factor. So not only is is U.S. corn uh, you know more competitive today than it normally is, 
uh, but, but also it has a bit of a premium because people are really confident in the U.S. system and then being able to get grain out. So um, it, it's good to see that. It's something we've always talked about at the Grains Council, and it's good to see that come to fruition in, in a real time of uncertainty. So farmers have held on to corn for some time, kept it in storage, hoping for a better price. As some of that corn starts to move, have there been any concerns raised by our customers about the quality of the corn? Yeah, I think I think that you know, I don't know if it's necessarily due to the corn starting to move. And, and you're exactly right, Mike, on that. That's that also makes markets quite a bit more interesting. Some of those government payments that came in, making folks hang on to the to their grain, no no incentive to sell. Um, but I think the quality concerns really started during the growing season. People around the world understand uh, weather conditions and what that means for the quality of grain. And so we were really getting a lot of we get a lot of calls and concerns. Uh, during the growing season and I think this year you know we're getting calls people asking you know is the crop really as good as they're saying it's going to be and and I think the jury's still out but last year um, those calls that we got you know this time of year a little after were were about the late plantings and what that's going to mean for the crop so the concerns have been there since day one as as they always are from every origin people are running uh, you know multi-million dollar facilities around the world and the quality of their corn is very important to them. So how do you monitor that? Uh, do you have ways of kind of watching that and uh, keeping track of the quality and what you hear from customers? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. Here at the Grains Council, we do a, a we do two reports annually. Uh, one is the harvest quality report, um, and, and the other is the export cargo quality report. And at the harvest quality report, um, we just finished our ninth year of these, uh, and so we have some historical data. Uh, at the Harvest Quality Report, we're looking at uh, the quality of the corn at first point of sale. So that's whether the grain is going into uh, you know, a co-op or even some, some larger on-farm storage, um, or if it's going to uh, maybe a small shuttle loader or something like that out in the country. We take the samples there, uh, and we monitor the quality coming off the field. And, you know, as many of the growers out there know, um, the quality that they're selling out of the field is generally much higher than what a feedlot might uh, receive at the end or an export customer might receive at the end. Therefore, you know, we think it's valuable to reevaluate those samples at export because in the U.S. system, there's quite a bit of elevation that occurs to the grain uh, as it moves from on-farm storage to co-op to uh, shuttle loader or barge loader down to the Gulf where it then gets elevated again. Uh, where we then take those samples. So it's important to understand that mechanical damage that the, that the corn incurs in the U.S. system um, and, and also to understand the correlation between the crop quality when it comes off and what that means for uh, the crop as it moves through the system and maybe try to um, you know, head off some of the questions that are going to come when this corn hits export. Because when we're taking our harvest samples, you know, that report – comes out in late November, early December, uh, and then our and so that's really before the U.S. export program has been able to kick off. Um, so folks are able to look at this and really have an idea, uh, at least compared to the other eight years or nine years of testing we've done, um, what that corn's going to look like. Um, so that helps us kind of head off some of those questions and get in front of folks and really help them uh, manage anything if there's going to be a year where quality is of any kind of concern. And, and last year was certainly one of the only years uh, in us really looking at this report that has been of concern. And that, that's due to, strictly to the growing conditions we have. 
We're talking with Reese Kennedy, Manager of Global Trade for the U.S. Grains Council. Reese, I'm sure you're watching closely, as so many are, uh, what's going on between the U.S. and China and watching and uh, where they're going to wind up being as far as their phase one commitments in the trade deal. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think as as someone who anybody who watches trade has got their eyes on that. There's no question. How concerned are you about the rhetoric between the two and how that impacts our sales to China? Well, I'm not sure it's really impacted a whole heck of a lot yet when we look at soybeans. Um, you know, on the corn side, we're uh, we have the, the tariff rate quota where we can't send more than 7.2 million metric tons or any anywhere. Uh, you know, they can't import more than that. So you're sort of restricted there. So I really look at beans when I want to look at sort of the ag uh, products and, and, and what China is up to. And also I look at uh, ethanol plant registration for distillers grains exports. And, you know, they've they've honored their commitments on the distillers grains uh, side. I think, um, you know, we've been really happy to see them sort of push forward and and uh, and, and look at, at, at uh, expediting plant registration. For, for the distillers grain side. And then when I look at soybean purchases, it seems that they're fairly consistent. I mean, like, like I mentioned, we're almost going to be at capacity at the Gulf for soybean exports. Um, you know, it looks like we're going to have a, a fairly robust soybean program. And, and so I, I think there is general concern in Washington. Um, I think that that is, is certainly the case. I think the rhetoric is uh, fairly inflammatory that's coming from, from the United States. And I think, you know, if, if uh, if we want to, to, to continue to harvest this great relationship together moving forward, um, you know, we need to, we need to tr- really try to work together uh, and try to continue to, to um, you know, be successful in this phase one commitment. And, and so far, I think anybody who really looks at this closely is, you know, pretty happy with, with what China has done. They, I don't think they're going to stick their neck out and buy a bunch of things uh, or a bunch of raw materials at a price that doesn't convene for them. I think that would be an issue for them uh, with, with the WTO and other things. So I think they're buying when the, when the price is appropriate, and it has been. And, and so I, th- I think, it, you know, in my mind, they're honoring their price. All right, Reese, good to talk with you. Thank you for the update and your perspective. We appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. All right, take care. Reese Kennedy, Manager of Global Trade for the U.S. Grains Council. One other note, and we'll be talking more about this uh, later in the week, uh, EPA is defending its decision to allow use of existing stocks of those three dicamba herbicides, saying they did not go against the court ruling. They're drawing a uh, a line here between existing stocks and new sales. Uh, so basically kind of using finding a legal loophole to defend its action. And, of course, it's not uh, setting too well by those who brought the, uh, uh, the court uh, case in the first place and those that are critics of the use of dicamba. But that's uh, EPA's position now, and uh, they are defending their position. We'll have more on this in the days to come. But up next, the U.S. Apple Association wants into CFAP. We'll talk with their president and CEO next. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. We talked earlier with FSA Administrator Richard Fordyce about the CFAP payments. The numbers just under $3 billion has gone out so far of the $16 billion that's available. We mentioned and he talked about that they are still looking at 
commodities that were not included originally in the CFAP program, still taking data about uh, those commodities, and a decision will be coming sometime after June 22nd. One of those commodities that once in is the Apple industry. Jim Baer, president and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association, is with us. Jim, thanks for being with us. So I'm sure you're you're making your case to USDA, right? We sure are, Mike. Uh, you know, when we saw USDA's decision that they had concluded that apple growers across the United States did not qualify because USDA said, well, your prices haven't declined enough. Well, you could ask any farmer of any commodity across your listening area. I'm sure they would tell you just the opposite, and that's certainly true of apples. And as we got to looking into it, we discovered that in uh, in doing their analysis, USDA had looked at so-called terminal prices for apples. And those terminals are in places like Miami, Atlanta, Dallas, and so forth. And obviously those prices don't reflect the prices that growers receive. That's like saying that uh, because live cattle prices in the upper Midwest have gone down, the, then uh, the price of a ribeye at a nice steakhouse in Miami should have gone down. Well, we know that that doesn't happen. That's not true. So we put together, as far as I'm aware, the largest database of information probably ever submitted to USDA in, in, a, in a pricing disagreement. We We presented them with actual sales data on more than 43 million bushel boxes of apples. That was more than half of all the apples that were marketed um, from January to April. And we proved that the price declined anywhere from 65 to 25%. So fingers crossed, hopefully uh, they will take that information and come up with a different conclusion. Yeah, the apple industry, your industry, the apple industry, we know egg producers are, are trying to get in, as, as are some others. Are you concerned about how much room there's going to be to get everybody under the tent? Well, they tell us good things about that, and Congress allocated a lot of money for this, and USDA then uh, matched it with some, own, uh, some of its own money from the Commodity Credit Corporation. So uh, as you pointed out, there have been almost $3 billion has been uh, sent out the door already to 220,000 farmers all across America, everything from vegetables to to uh, livestock and dairy and, and wool and, and row crops. But there are some crops that, you know, just fails the, the laugh test of why they wouldn't be included. Potatoes, for example, are in the same boat as apples. Uh, sweet potatoes, blueberries, uh, there's a number of crops that it just doesn't make sense. And so uh, they tell us that, they've, that they're going to have enough money, but we're anxious to get a decision from them uh, as quickly as possible so that, so that our growers can make the same kind of claims that growers of other commodities. And, in fact, uh, you know, some classes of wheat didn't qualify. So it's, uh, it's kind of silly on that basis. But we're hopeful that there will be money uh, available. It was Congress's intent. And we just needed to prove to them that we were uh, in the same economic straits as those growers of the commodities that, that did qualify. We've, we've seen uh, statistics in our own industry, for example. Our carryover stocks are 15% above 
the previous record. I mean, that's a huge amount of apples. We've got we've got almost 20 percent of our 2019 crop still in storage, with just less than two months to go before harvest begins. And as you might guess, Mike, nothing good comes from trying to sell year-old apples. So we're anxious to try to get this thing going because our economic picture matches that of most of the other commodities that are in your listing area. It's it's a bad situation. We're talking with Jim Baer, president and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. So, Jim, you've got the, the data to show uh, the, the losses and the damage that's been done to the industry. Can you relate those to COVID-19? Absolutely. As we saw in, in most export-dependent commodities, and we're one of them, we normally export about a third of the crop. About a third of the U.S. apple crop uh, gets exported every year. And they experienced the same COVID-19 pandemic in our main markets. Uh, China was a new emerging market for us. Uh, India, Mexico, Canada. So uh, it's very clear to us that with the exception of a, a two-week period when everything started shutting down to quarantine around the 1st of April, we saw two weeks of increases in volume shipments uh, because people were, were stocking their pantries for the long haul for the quarantine. But as soon as that happened, then the bottom fell out and and shipping volumes have declined dramatically, not only in the U.S., but in our export markets. And we couldn't do any export promotion. Uh, we don't do that at U.S. Apple, but some of our uh, some of our partner organizations do. Same kind of promotion things that um, other commodities do. And uh, the, the markets were closed in the overseas markets, and the ports were closed. Um, in many of the Asian markets, the, the, uh, the ports have been closed. No trucking, no... Nobody to unload the, the ships in the ports, and so we very clearly believe that it's a result of uh, the impact of COVID-19. How has your industry dealt with this situation? Uh, well, when you're talking about uh, uh, produce from trees, it's a little different than you know planting something every year. I mean, it's harder to make that you know a cutback. I mean, those trees are there. Uh, are you losing growers? Are you cutting back production at all or seeing people go out of business? What's what's going on in the apple industry? Well, I think if you and I have the same conversation a year from today, Mike, I will be able to tell you about a lot of growers that will have gone out of business. And and that's a sad thing. Nobody wants to see that. Now, some of that is, is naturally occurring and econ 101 tells us all that it occurs from time to time in every segment of agriculture but you hate to see it happen uh because of planting over planting or or bad decision making that's clearly not the case here and as you point out when you plant an apple tree you don't get any production for about three years it's usually about the fourth year that you start getting any production it costs about $60,000 to put in an acre of, of apple orchard, and that's not including uh, the cost of the land and tractors and irrigation and so forth. That's just the trees and, and uh, trellis work and so forth. So it's very expensive. And then you know that those apple trees are going to be in the ground for probably 20 to 25 years. So you better make good decisions about 
what varieties you plant and because there's no going back at least not in any in any easy way and what we're seeing to get to your question what we're seeing is that uh growers who have planted the premium varieties that are so popular honeycrisp and others like it uh, are having to sell those at prices a third to a half less than they would have in a normal year Uh, so they're selling the premium top quality varieties at an average price and that hurts a lot so we're seeing uh, uh, that the value of last year's crop was the lowest in a decade and uh, that's not going to turn around fast we need to triple our exports very quickly in the next couple of months to make room for the 2020 harvest. Otherwise, uh, people are already talking about destroying apples, just taking them out and dumping them. And that's, you know, nobody likes to see that, especially when there's, um, when there are people that are 40 million Americans are newly unemployed. You hate to see anybody throw food away, but at the same time, it's more expensive for the grower to pack and ship the apples than it is to, um, you know, just destroy them. You saw that in livestock in your listening area, and, and uh, you, know, you hate to see it, but by the same uh, token, growers are business people, and they've got to do what makes the most sense for them economically. Unfortunately, unless things change dramatically in the next um, eight weeks, we're going to see a lot of apples get destroyed, I'm afraid. Wow. Yeah, I hate to see it come to that, but uh, that's been one of the uh, the stories we've seen throughout this uh pandemic and uh, whether it be in livestock or as you say now with apples as well and we've certainly seen it in dairy uh, and milk being dumped and things like that well jim thank you for the update and we'll wait and see if your request to usda whether you get uh, allowed in the cfat program or not we'll talk again when you get that decision thank you very much Fingers crossed, Mike. Thanks for the chat. All right. Take care. Jim Baer, president and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. That's one of the commodities trying to get in to the CFAP program, uh, submitting their data, making their case to USDA. And as we heard Richard Fordyce tell us earlier, they are taking that information, they're looking at it, and they'll be making a decision sometime after June 22nd on uh, which, if any, more commodities will be allowed in to the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. All right, up next, we have the latest ag equipment sales numbers. We keep an eye on those as they kind of reflect what's going on with the ag economy. Uh, we'll take a look at uh, what pieces of equipment are doing better than others and how the numbers compare to a year ago. Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers will join us next right here on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Each month we go over the latest ag equipment sales numbers, kind of a, another indicator, another barometer on uh, the ag economy, how farmers feel about uh, their uh, financial situation and how optimistic they are uh, looking forward. And joining us again is Kurt Blades, the Senior Vice President of Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Kurt, good to have you back with us. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for having me on. Well, what do the May numbers tell us? Well, we got a mixed bag in May. Overall, 
uh, tractors and combine sales were up for the month of May uh, by actually quite a quite a nice little bit. But that is really because uh, under 40 horsepower tractors were up quite sharply. Uh, so we saw about a 20% jump in under 40 horsepower tractors for the month of May, bringing us up to about six uh, six percentage points above where we were this time last year with under 40 horsepower tractors. Uh, on the flip side, tra- uh, farm tractors, so uh, those over 40 horsepower, those over 100 horsepower, those articulated four-wheel drive tractors, those all saw you know some some declines across the board. So uh, uh, you know we you know it, it's a, it is a mixed bag. The overall numbers are are up. But in those uh, in those bigger tractor markets like uh, over uh, 140, oh, me, over 100 horsepower and over articulated four wheel drives, those are certainly down. Okay, so when you look at those numbers, you analyze those numbers. What are they telling us? Well, I think we're seeing a couple of things. What our numbers are telling us is that those under 40 horsepower tractors, as you know, represent a lot of folks that are not using those tractors to do much farm work, but they're operating on their acreage. I think what we're finding is that, you know, folks have been home, you know, been quarantined or they've not been traveling and those people with acreages may have found another project or two to work on. It was time to update their, uh, update their small tractor. On the flip side, on the, uh, on the ag side, those larger tractors, I think that's a really good reflection of just really that uncertainty that's out there. I mean, whether, whether it's uncertainty in trade, whether it's uncertainty in biofuels or, or, you know, just the gen- overall general economy, I think that's, that's probably what's indicating those, uh, those decline in the over 100 and the articulated four-wheel drive tractors. Another interesting point is that combine saw a slight decline uh, for the month of May. Um, that brings it to about 10% down this year over last year. But, Mike, if you recall the conversations we were having last year this time about combines, we actually were enjoying quite a, quite a nice sales run on combines. Um, I think for all practical purposes, we're, we're getting close to being flat for the year, uh, that I, but I would fully expect that to turn around given that there's some pretty neat technology that's getting ready to come out to the market with new combines. How much of a factor do you think the ag assistance money is playing in this? I mean, if you look at it where you're at now with the ag assistance farmers have received, where, the, where, where you would be if they did not have that assistance? Well, I mean, I think the way I would view this, you know, capital uh, capital equipment is like a, uh, like a tractors and combines. I mean, that's a that's a considered purchase, and I think the uh, you know the assistance programs are to you know really uh, really help in the short term with some of the, the stresses that are related to maybe your livestock crop or maybe even having some uh, stuff that you're trying to deal with in the short run. I mean, the fundamentals have got to be in place for. Uh, for a farmer to want to invest in that capital equipment, I think that's kind of where we might be seeing that that uh, you know that third, that uh, assistance program helps with the attitude and helps kind of you know release some of those uh, you know the, some of the burden that a farmer might feel and they might want to make an upgrade in their equipment or or uh, or finally make a trade. But I think um, you know that you know that that's part of the equation, but it's not the full equation. The the bigger piece on what's affecting whether or not farmers want to buy equipment has to do with their, uh, you know, their optimism on the future of that market in general. We're talking with Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Kurt, how has your industry dealt with and continues to deal with COVID-19? Well, I'll tell you what, as, as every industry, it's been a crazy few months. 
and we've learned how to do things remotely that we never thought that we would be able to do. We've got you know dealers that are making remote sales calls and remote servicing, and we've got manufacturing happening in split shifts, uh, you know, sort of across the across the nation. Uh, as long as the supply chain has been open, we really haven't seen a terrible slowdown in availability. I mean, there's been a couple of disruptions here and there, but on the equipment side, we've done a pretty good job of, of keeping the keeping the wheels on. Uh, but having said that, it's it's causing us to do things differently. I think uh, you know time's going to tell whether whether some of these uh, new tools that we've started to use and farmers interacting virtually online and interacting with their with their trusted advisors, their retailers, and their dealers, whether that's going to be something that continues uh, for the future because those two tools are available. Or if when this passes, if we kind of go back to the face-to-face model, I think the jury's still out. But I think what we're probably going to see is that uh, as folks get exposed to some of this technology and some of these new tools of communication, I think a lot of them are kind of liking it and finding this is a pretty effective way for us to get business done. Yeah, I think that's a question. It'll be interesting to see what the answer is uh, for a lot of different businesses, a lot of parts of our life. What do we go back to the way it used to be, if we can, and which some of these new things we've had to adjust to or adapt, how many of those kind of, you know, stick on, stick with us, and we stay with that way of doing it? Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, the way we're approaching it as an association and working with with our members and working with the folks that we're, we're dealing with, we're finding that, that the, uh, the virtual conversations, they're not as good but they're, they're pretty solid, and we can talk about a lot of things virtually. I think what that's going to find is that when we do get back together face-to-face, it's going to mean a whole lot more, and those face-to-face conversations are going to be a whole lot more structured and a whole lot more valuable. I think as we reflect on what the, what the future of trade shows are going to look like and feature some of these farm shows that are happening yet this fall as well as uh, into 21, I think that's what we're going to find is a – a real concentrated effort because there's pent-up demand to have that face-to-face conversation. But when those face-to-face conversations happen, I think they're going to be a little bit more meaningful. Hmm. Yeah. Kurt, thanks a lot. Good to talk with you. Look forward to seeing you face-to-face again soon. Take care. You bet. Thanks, Mike. Kurt Blade, Senior Vice President, Bag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Tomorrow we'll take a look at the implementation of USMCA and some concerns in the dairy industry, more reaction to the dicamba decision, and more. Hope you'll join us right here on AOA. AOA.